you, Ben, for that very kind introduction. I think what's revealed there is mostly a form of attention deficit disorder. Uh, I don't, uh, I can't stick with one topic or one genre for very long. Uh, I want to thank uh, Kelly and Chad also for uh, organizing this. Thank you all for coming out on a Saturday morning to listen to me talk about Shakespeare. Uh, I don't have any clever introduction. I'm going to talk about comedy. I'm going to talk about tragedy as general categories of drama. Uh, and I'm going to talk about one of each. I'm going to uh, talk about Merchant of Venice as the comedy that I'll uh, discuss in some depth, and then King Lear as the tragedy that I want to discuss. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll get right to business. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you are uh, the God of all things, that everything that is uh, comes from you. We thank you that you reveal yourself in your entire creation, uh, and that you have spoken in your word, and you have also given us wisdom through those uh, who have insight into your world. We thank you for Shakespeare's plays. We thank you for the insight it gives us into your character and your world. And we pray that uh, as we study these things today, that Jesus would be honored and glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. Comedy was not always considered a high form of art. Uh, in the ancient world, comedy was seen as a much lower form of art, a lower form of, of drama, than tragedy. Comedy had to do with low characters. Tragedy had to do with exalted characters, noble characters who had not only noble status, but also had a certain kind of nobility, certain kind of virtue of nobility. Uh, low class characters with low virtue, that was the stuff of comedy. And for the ancients, as I'll talk about a little bit more in a second, the ancients uh, tragedy, not comedy, got you to the real truth of things. Tragedy exposed the reality of the way things actually, actually are in the world. The world is a tragic place. And one way you can see this in ancient literature, in lots of different cultures, is that the way they often described, uh, describe the progression or really the degeneration of humanity. Human history is a degenerative history. It starts with a golden age when everything was easy, everything, everyone acted well, there was communion between the gods and men, uh, everything was easy to access, food was plentiful and uh, easily to, easy to find. Uh, that eroded into a silver age, which then erodes into a bronze age, which erodes into an iron age. And then eventually you get to something like, every time somebody gives a myth like this, it's always the present age is at the bottom of the, of the cycle. Uh, it's a degenerative history that's going from a better age into a worse and worse and worse age until you get to the present age, which is always bad. The best you can hope for is that time has a cyclical quality, that is, you get to the bottom, you get to the age of uh, a decayed age, a degenerative age, a degenerate age, and maybe you can recover the golden age. You can go back to the beginning. But if you go back to the beginning and start the cycle over again, you go back to a golden age, then that's just, that is just starting the cycle over again. You're gonna, a golden age is going to slip into a silver age, which is going to slip into a bronze age, which is going to slip into iron age, and then again to a degenerate age. 
the whole understanding of how the world works, not just how literature works, but the whole understanding of how the world works in ancient literature is tragic. Christianity inverts that. Uh, Christianity says it's not the tragedy, it's not tragedy that gives us an insight into the actual nature of things, but comedy. The world is not a tragic world, but a comic world. What I mean by that is a tragedy is a, a, a drama or a story that might begin well, it might begin in an orderly fashion, it ends badly, often ends with most of the characters dead on the stage if you're watching a tragic drama. A comedy has a happy ending. You might have a comedy that goes through all kinds of obstacles and challenges and the characters think that they might end tragically, they're on the edge of tragedy, they're on the edge of disaster, but then something comes to the rescue at the last moment and everyone lives happily ever after. So it has to do with the way things end and the, and the shape of the story. That's what I mean by tragedy and comedy. You can have comedies that are dark. You can have tragedies that have a lot of comic elements, tragedies that have uh, humorous elements in it. That doesn't make it a comedy. It's the shape of the story. And Christianity teaches, the Bible teaches, that uh, the story of the world is a comic story. Uh, it starts in Eden. It starts with a fall which looks like the beginning of a tragedy, a degeneration, and there certainly is a degeneration that takes place uh, through different periods of biblical history. But then in the middle of things, in the middle of history, God acts from the outside, he intervenes from the outside, and he changes the course and the trajectory of history. And instead of continuing on to a disaster, humanity is put back on a road to a restoration. If you look at the whole shape of the biblical story, it moves from a garden, then a, an expulsion from a garden from after the fall, but it ends with a restor, restored garden at the end of Revelation. You have this great vision in Revelation 21 and 22 of a restored garden that is grown up into a city. That's not just comedy. That's just not just a restoration of what was lost, a restoration of paradise lost, but that's a paradise lost and recovered and surpassed, the end surpasses the beginning. The end is better than the beginning. Uh, that's what I mean by deep comedy, the, the book that uh, Ben mentioned uh, earlier. That's the, the idea of deep comedy that I think, I think is embedded in Christian, Christianity, it's embedded in the Bible, uh, it's embedded in not only in biblical understanding of history, it's embedded in the biblical understanding of metaphysics uh, and the biblical understanding of humanity. Uh, humanity's history for all our sin and all our uh, rebellion and all the degeneration and judgment that results from that. Humanity's history is a history of moving from glory to glory until we live in increasing glory, in infinitely increasing glory in a new creation. That's deep comedy. Uh, and the, the ancient world knows nothing of that. Uh, the ancient classics know nothing of that, that shift, that change in the world. There, is, there are a couple of places in the Bible that list those metals that you find in the ancient myths, gold, silver, bronze, iron. Um, one of them is in Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue, has a head of gold, it has a torso of silver, it has uh, a midwife of uh, bronze, legs and feet of iron, iron mixed with clay at the bottom. It's this degenerating, um, uh, this represent degenerating kingdoms. These are the kingdoms that are going to follow 
Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and the kingdoms and the empires that follow are the ones that come after him. That's, that's basically the ancient myth depicted as a statue. But as the, as the vision goes on, as the dream goes on, what Nebuchadnezzar sees is a stone uh, cut without hands that strikes the feet of the statue, makes the statue crumble to dust, and then that stone begins to grow, and it keeps growing until it's a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's the fifth kingdom, and the fifth kingdom is identified as the kingdom of God. You have this degenerated history, but that's not the end of things, and you don't simply cycle back to the golden age. In fact, instead you have this, this, entire, this entire scenario, the entire degenerative history is wiped out, crumbles to dust, and instead you have this kingdom whose history is a kingdom of growth and expansion until it fills the entire earth. That's the biblical picture of history. It's a comic picture, and it's a deeply comic picture because it doesn't simply uh, go from paradise to paradise, but it goes from paradise to a greater paradise, from a garden to a, a garden that's grown up to and been glorified into a city. Uh, I have, we have virtually no access to Shakespeare's understanding of the world other than the plays. I mean, there, as you probably know, there are controversies about whether William Shakespeare, who was an actual person, whether William Shakespeare ever, ever actually, actually wrote the plays that are attributed to him. There's a lot of suggestions about uh, alternative authors, a lot of debate. Uh, recent, a recent book has stirred up that debate again about whether Shakespeare wrote the plays. Not whether Shakespeare existed, uh, everyone says William, William Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Will Shakespeare existed. He was an actor on the London stage. The question is whether he actually produced the plays that we attribute to him. I'm going to take it for granted that William Shakespeare did produce the plays. I actually think that's true, but that's immaterial. But the thing is, we, uh, that William Shakespeare, we know nothing about. And if somebody else wrote the plays, we don't know anything about their personal beliefs because we don't know who they are. Uh, the only thing we can uh, look at are the plays themselves and what kind of view of the world the plays depict. Uh, and I believe that Shakespeare's plays, whatever his personal beliefs might have been, Shakespeare's plays operate within this Christian comic framework. And I'm going to suggest when we look at King Lear that there are even indications that even in tragedy, even when Shakespeare wrote tragedies, he's still working within that Christian comic framework when he's talking about uh, tragic plots and tragic uh, stories. Uh, and so what I, th what I find in Shakespeare is, uh, are hints of that comic storyline and often a deeply comic storyline, that is a comic storyline that doesn't just end where it began, but a comic storyline in which the characters and the situation is superior at the end to what it was at the beginning. Uh, a uh, Shakespeare critic named Leo Salinger has su suggested that Shakespeare's plays uh, are guided by a faith that's the word he uses. Guided by a faith that has a couple of elements to it. One is, uh, it's a kind of a negative judgment about humanity. Human beings have the capacity to utterly ruin themselves and their world. Human beings are, we would say, sinners. Shakespeare does use that language. But even when he's not using that language, he has a has a, he recognizes the evil that is inherent in human beings. Human beings have a capacity to ruin ourselves and our world. We do not have any capacity to repair the damage. 
in order to repair the damage, there has to be something from outside that intervenes into the situation uh, of human ruin. We mess things up, we can't fix it, and there has to be some kind of grace, that's Salinger's term again, he's using theological terminology to describe the, the, uh, the way that Shakespeare's plays work. There has to be some element of grace that intervenes into the damaged world, into the ruin of the world, in order to put it back on track. Uh, sometimes that grace comes after a hugely co- a tragic outcome. There's a little hint of restoration right at the end of a tragedy, for example. There's a little hint of restoration. Uh, the grace of grace appears right at the end of Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth has destroyed Scotland. He's dead. Uh, he's killed a bunch of people. He's caused the ruin of Scotland. But there's a hint of restoration that after Macbeth is gone, the grace of grace has intervened and there's a, a promise of a new Scotland that's going to emerge from it. But it is grace. It has to come from outside. Sometimes that grace takes the form of magic. Uh, the fairies of Midsummer Night's Dream are a kind of grace the characters in Midsummer Night's Dream have gotten themselves into a variety of different tangles. Uh, the fairies initially make things even more tangled. If you know the play, they, they make things worse at the beginning. But eventually, the magic is applied properly, and this outside force, this outside power, is able to put the storyline back on a comic trajectory. Uh, so that's, that's a basic... Uh, that's a basic conviction that's reflected in the plays. Whatever, whatever Shakespeare's uh, personal convictions, that's a conviction that's reflected in the way that the plays work. Another Shakespeare critic, Nick Peter Saccio, uh, has described two different pathways that Shakespearean comedy takes. Two different pathways that Shakespearean comedy takes. Yeah, takes. I'm checking my grammar there. Yeah. Shakespearean comedy takes. Comedy is the subject of the verb takes, so takes is the right form of that verb. I got myself convoluted with subordinate clauses there. Yeah, um, there are two different pathways, two different forms that grace takes, uh, and it depends on the kind of obstacle that's set up for the characters in a comedy. Comedy is about desire, about characters who want to achieve certain desires. They want things, usually in Shakespeare, it's uh, desire for another person. It's a, it's a romantic desire. But comedy works by having a series of obstacles that stand between the desire and the fulfillment of that desire. In a comedy, the desires are fulfilled in the end, but along the way, uh, the path of true love is, uh, what's, what's the phrase for Midsummer Night's Dream? I've, I've lost it now. Uh, the way of true love is tangled, it's not tangled, but um, the, the path of true love is not straight. You have to go around obstacles, you have to overcome obstacles before your desire can be fulfilled. And Peter Saccio suggests that there are two different kinds of obstacles that stand in the way, usually of lovers, but of the comic character who desires some kind of, uh, some kind of outcome. One of these, ki- one of these um, uh, kinds of obstacles is an external obstacle. Something outside of the lover or the two lovers that prevents them from being united. Uh, Sometimes that's a parent. Dad doesn't like the guy. Okay, That's an obstacle to the desires of the lovers. Sometimes it's a rival lover. 
Uh, there's another guy that dad likes better who also wants the girl. Or the two lovers are in combat with each other and you don't know, the girl might want one rather than the other, but they're fighting with each other. Sometimes the obstacle is a legal obstacle or a customary obstacle. There's some kind of law in place that prevents the lovers from fulfilling their desire and being united with one another. Sometimes, as in Midsummer Night's Dream, it's all three of those together. Look at Lysander and Hermia at the beginning of Midsummer Night's Dream. They're the ones who are in love. Their father, uh, Hermia's father, Aegis, says no because he prefers this other guy uh, and wants him to marry Hermia. So you've got a father's setting up an obstacle. You've got a rival lover because the father prefers the rival lover. And you've got Theseus, the Duke of Athens, who's backing up Aegeus and warning Hermia if she doesn't father, follow her father's will in this and marry the guy that he chooses, she's going to go off to a convent. Uh, footnote, I didn't know convents existed in ancient Athens, but there you go. Off to a convent and remain a virgin her entire life, never marry. So you've got a piling up of obstacles. You've got the father, you've got a rival lover, you've got all that reinforced by the law. Okay. That's an external, a set of external obstacles that are keeping lovers apart from each other. And when that kind of setup is, uh, if that's the setup in a Shakespearean play, then the solution, the way of grace, if you will, is exit, or to put, give it a more theological name, exodus. Notice external obstacle, exodus. Easy to remember. If there's an external obstacle, you leave the situation. The two lovers flee. You go out into a green world. You go out into a, you go outside of civilization. You go outside of the city, usually into a kind of Edenic garden world, into a forest, uh, somewhere where you're escaping the law, you're escaping parental authority, you're escaping from the rival lover. And it's in that green world that things are resolved. So if you have an, ex, an external obstacle or a set of external obstacles, the grace takes the form of exodus and return, an exodus to a place where grace can become operative, which is what happens in Midsummer, Night, Midsummer Night's Dream. You have the fairies again that operate in the forest, and in the forest, the lovers pair off the way they're supposed to pair off. It's all tangled when they're inside Athens. It becomes even more tangled at first in the forest, but then it's ultimately resolved. And when they come back out of the forest, they're paired off the way they want to be. And Theseus and Aegeus and everybody accepts that. And so the influence of the green world, the influence of the Edenic world, the, the world outside of civilization comes back and renews the civilized world of Athens. That's one comic plot. An external obstacle leads to an exodus plot, which, and, and the resolution comes somewhere else an exodus and return. Sometimes the obstacles are internal. That is to say the obstacles exist within the persons themselves. The, peop the, per the people involved for some reason resist the, uh, the fulfillment of desire. Maybe one of the lovers is not particularly interested in another lover. Sometimes it's a combination of an external internal obstacle as in Taming of the Shrew, which I understand you've recently put on. There's a customary obstacle because 
Uh, Bianca can't be married until her older sister Kate is married. That's the custom of the place. Uh, uh, where, where is it taking place? In, where does, where does, where does uh, Padua, that's right. Uh, I was thinking Petruchio's line, I've come to wive it, wive it wealthily in Padua, right? So you've got an external obstacle in a sense, but you also have this internal obstacle with Kate, who is the one who's standing in the way of Bianca's happiness, uh, and she's the shrew of the play, and she's, her behavior is preventing guys from getting anywhere close to her. She scares them silly. Uh, and so because she's, uh, for reasons that the play, I think, makes pretty clear, she's acting out and preventing her sister from fulfilling her happiness. When you have an internal obstacle like that, then what you need is an invasion. That's Peter Saccio's term. An invasion, or I would say an incarnation. You have to have something come into the situation from the outside and invade that situation in order to correct it. And in Taming of the Shrew, this is Petruchio, who comes to uh, wive it wealthily in Padua. Right? He's looking for a wife, uh, and he takes on the project of, uh, of wooing the shrew Kate, uh, and that breaks up the logjam. The, the Twelfth Night, if you know the play Twelfth Night, uh, that has the same kind of situation. We've got a, kind of a static situation. Um, Orsino is pining over Olivia. Olivia has refused, is refusing to see any men since her, her brother is dead. She's mourning for her brother, and she won't even accept any overtures from Orsino. Orsino's the duke or the count of the island. Uh, Olivia's the great lady of the island, and they're just kind of they're, they're both pining away, and something has to break into that situation in order, to, in order to move it along toward a comic conclusion. In this case, it's Viola, who's shipwrecked on the island of Illyria, and Viola takes the disguise of a page, comes into the house of Orsino, uh, and through a series of complicating, uh, complicating things, again, things get sorted out, and Orsino and Olivia are broken out of their static condition. But it takes an invasion, and often the invasions take the form of uh, uh, people who are in disguise, people who are taking on a false identity in order to uh, be uh, in order to invade the situation. Okay, uh, let me apply those two paradigms to Merchant of Venice because you have both of those dynamics going on in Merchant of Venice, depending on which characters you're looking at. Merchant of Venice is. Uh, can, can be seen as uh, organized around uh, a sets of three. There are three settings, there are three plots, there are three kind of uh, resurrections or um, uh, liberations that take place in Merchant of Venice. The three settings are Venice, you can tell that from the title, it's gonna take place in Venice, which is a commercial city it's associated with money and business and hard dealing. Uh, the merchant of Venice is Antonio, uh, and Antonio is going to be uh, one of the main characters. He's the one who's mainly under threat in the course of the play. But it's also the city of Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, who is the villain of the play. Uh, but it's a daylight, bustling commercial center. You also have, just outside of Venice, you have the home of Portia, which is known as Belmont, beautiful mountain. And Belmont is a, not, a commercial, uh, not a commercial place. It's associated with night, with twilight, with art, with music. 
It's ruled over at the time the play begins by Portia. Her father has died and she's, she's in charge of the house. Uh, and so it's a, it's a feminine setting as opposed to the masculine, bustling commercial setting of Venice. So each of these main, uh, two main settings has kind of symbolic associations attached to it. And what's interesting is that Shakespeare is not intending to choose one or the other. He's not intending to choose Belmont over Venice. I think what, rather what he wants is a kind of marriage of the two. That's, that's the, uh, thematically, that's kind of the comic conclusion. You have commerce and art, commerce and romance that are not set at odds. They're at odds through a lot of the play, but they're intended to be joined. And then there's a subset of Venice, which is the house of Shylock. Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, uh, he's a hard-dealing moneylender. He charges interest, which at the time is forbidden to Christians, uh, and Christians despise him for charging interest on his loans. He despises them uh, in turn, uh, and his house is described as being kind of a hell, and, uh, and a place that his daughter, Jessica, hopes to escape. Uh, so those three settings uh, are the places where the play takes place. In the midst of those settings, there are three different plots. There's what's called the casket plot, what's called the bond plot, and what's called the ring plot. And I'm gonna talk in some depth about the first two of those. The last one is, uh, is brought up toward the end of the play and not as, not as important to what I wanna say. The casket plot has to do with Portia. And by casket, it means a chest, a treasure chest. Uh, the word casket is used, which I think is significant because, of course, caskets are associated with death, and she talks about herself as being kind of entombed in these caskets. Uh, but the casket, uh, there are three different caskets, three different treasure chests. There's one of gold, one of silver, and one of iron. Uh, and this was something that was set up by Portia's father. He, he died, leaving her very wealthy with an inheritance, and he knew that there would be many suitors who would come after Portia merely for her money. So in order to uh, sift through the suitors, he set up a test for the, for the suitors. They have to choose from these three caskets, these three treasure chests, uh, choose the one that contains a picture, a portrait of Portia. Uh, if they choose the wrong one, they have to leave never see Portia again, and never get married. So it's all or nothing. Uh, and uh, so this, this is the way that uh, Portia's father intends to sift through suitors who are not just after money, but are willing to risk everything for the, getting Portia, because they have to. They have to risk their future marital happiness. They have to put that on the line if they're going to even make a choice at all. And then he's testing to see how discerning they are by looking at these different metals and trying to read the different metals and trying to understand what the inscriptions on each of the caskets means. This is, uh, these are lines from one of the suitors who is from Morocco, and he's reading the three inscriptions. The first casket of gold, who this inscription bears, who chooses me shall gain what many men desire. Gold is associated with desire, and the gold chests we realize over the course of the play, the gold chest represents a certain kind of understanding of love. Love is about the fulfillment of desire. The second casket, silver, which this promise carries, who chooses me 
shall get as much as he deserves. Desert. Fairness. That's how love works, right? You get what you deserve when you fall in love. Well, if you choose the second, if you choose the second casket, the silver casket, that's what you're buying into. You're buying into, in fact, the, 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 the prince who chooses it says, I will assert um, my, uh, my desert. I will assert my rights. I deserve this. I deserve Portia. The third, dull lead, with warning all his blood, who chooses me must give and hazard all he has. And Morocco looks at that and says, ooh, scary. I gotta, I gotta hazard everything for Portia? No thanks, I'll choose gold. The second guy looks at the, right, well, we know it's gonna, be the, it's gonna be the lead chest. It's gonna be that one that's going to, that's going to uh, have, have her picture in it. The second guy looks at it and he says, oh, I don't want that, chooses the silver. Uh, and then Bassanio comes along, and Bassanio is the one that chooses rightly. I need to back up and talk about who Bassanio is before I read his reasoning about the different chess. So this is the second plot. There's the casket plot, and related to it is the bond plot. Bassanio had met Portia at some point in the past. Uh, he thought that she was attracted to him. In fact, she was. Uh, and he wants to engage in, the, in this uh, romantic game. He wants to have a chance to um, choose one of the caskets. The problem is... Bassanio has led, led a, a profligate life. He's spent the money that he inherited. He's had to take out a bunch of loans, so he's in debt. Uh, and he can't really put together the kind of impressive entourage that he needs in order to make a bid for Portia. If he shows up by himself in rags at Belmont and says, I'm, I'm the next suitor for Portia. That's, that's not going to go over. He needs uh, some money, and he doesn't have any. So he goes to his kinsman, a relative named Antonio, that's the merchant of Venice, and asks Antonio, can you lend me money? Antonio wants to do it. He wants to support Bassanio. Bassanio says, if this is successful, if this venture is successful, then I won't be in need of money ever again because Portia is very, very rich as well as being beautiful and virtuous. But she's very, very rich. This will take care of all my debts. The problem is Antonio doesn't have any cash either. Antonio has all of his, uh, all of his money tied up in trading ventures. He's a merchant. He risks uh, that, that lead casket, must give and hazard all he has. That's a, that's a principle of love for the suitors. It's also a principle of commerce. That's the kind of commerce that Venice should be known for. That's the kind of commerce that Antonio is known for. He's venturing all of his money, all of his capital is, is out in trading ventures. So he has to go to the Jewish moneylender Shylock in order to ask if he can get a loan from Shylock. Uh, and Shylock agrees to give him a loan, which will then pass on to Bassanio. Uh, but the loan has the... Has the uh, proviso that if Antonio defaults, if he can't pay back the loan, then Shylock will be able to cut out a pound of his flesh nearest to his heart. That's the collateral. He's not seizing Antonio's ships. He's not seizing his house. He wants a chunk of Antonio's body. Okay, that's the bond plot. So Bassanio is successful 
in, uh, in pursuing his, his uh, suit with Portia. Uh, and this is the reasoning that he goes through as he's looking at these different caskets. Uh, he starts meditating on ornaments, on appearances. And he said, the world is still deceived with ornaments. In law, what plea so tainted and corrupt, but being seasoned with a gracious voice, obscures the show of evil. If you put ornaments on a bad legal case, you can make it look like it's just. In religion, what damned error, but some sober brow will bless it and approve it with a text, hiding it with fair ornament. There is no vice so simple, but assumes some mark of virtue on his outward parts. Thus ornament is but the guiled shore to a most dangerous sea, the beauteous scarf veiling an Indian beauty. In a word, the seeming truth which cunning times put on to entrap the wisest. Therefore, so he's reasoning about ornament, he's reasoning about appearance. I can't judge by appearances. Therefore, thou gaudy gold, hard food for Midas, I will none of thee, nor none of thee, thou pale and common drudge betwixt man and man, that silver. But thou, thou meager lead, which rather threatens than dost promise aught, thy paleness moves me to more than eloquence, and here I choose I, joy be the consequence. He chooses the lead, Portia's picture is inside, Bassanio has his desire, you have a comic ending in the middle of the play. Okay. The romance has been concluded in the middle of the play. But there's a further obstacle to the happiness of the characters, and that is that Antonio's ships are said to have all sunk. They've gone out on these ventures, and the news comes back that he's lost all of his ships, all of his capital is gone, and he cannot pay back his loan. And so now Antonio needs to be rescued. I said that there are three liberations, three resurrections. Portia considers herself to be kind of held in the caskets until the proper suitor comes along and then she'll be resurrected out of the casket. Jessica, who is Shylock's daughter, she describes her father's house as being like hell. And she wants to be rescued from that hell and she actually, this is an exodus, uh, this is an exodus comedy for Jessica. She leaves in order to find happiness with Lorenzo, a Christian suitor. So she not only leaves the Jew, her, her Jewish father's house, but also leaves Judaism behind and becomes a Christian. But the third resurrection now is an Antonio. Uh, Portia, who has been raised up from the casket, is going to be the agent through whom Antonio is going to be raised from his threat. Okay. He's under threat from Shylock. And this becomes a court case because Shylock says, I've got a signed contract here. Antonio signed it. Nobody compelled him to sign it. The law demands, the law gives me, grants me a pound of this man's flesh. So this is a threat, not only to Antonio, an obvious threat to Antonio, because you can't take, uh, I'm no doctor, but I don't think you can take a pound of flesh near to somebody's heart uh, and... I don't think they'll be well okay, after that. That's, that's, my, that's my modest opinion. Uh, I'm, I, I'm suspecting they'll be something less than not well. They're probably dead. Okay. Um, 
So he's, de- he's demanding the law. And you've got this uh, interesting setup, of course, with the Jews and the Christians in Venice. Shylock representing the Jew and, and associated with the law just by being Jewish. But then he's insisting on the letter of the law. Nothing but what's in the bond. Nothing what's, but what's in the contract. Uh, this is a threat to Antonio, but it's also a threat to Venice. Suppose the Duke of Venice does what uh, Bassanio suggests that he do to do a little wrong in order to achieve a greater right. That is, to ignore the contract in order to save Antonio's life. Suppose he did that. What happens the next time two people enter into a contract to do some kind of commercial deal in Venice? Do they know that that contract is going to be enforced? Well, no. Venice, as a commercial empire, is threatened if their contracts are not enforced. So they have to enforce the contract. But on the other hand, if they enforce the contract, they're giving Shylock the freedom to assault and probably kill one of their own citizens. This is a a deadlock. And the only way in this situation, this is an obstacle that uh, that exists within Venice, this this, uh, internal contradiction within, within Venetian law, the only thing that can be resolved is by an incarnation, an invasion, which takes the form of Portia. Portia, who disguises herself as a, uh, as a jurist, as a lawyer. Bassanio, her, uh, she's, just, she's recently married Bassanio. Bassanio's in the same room, doesn't recognize her. Okay, you got a, a little bit of uh, suspension of disbelief here. Uh, there are some exchanges uh, where uh, Portia says something about uh, what Bassanio what says something like, uh, I, would, I would give everything I own, everything I have. I have a wife whom I love dearly. I would give her up to save Antonio. And Portia, in the disguise of this juror, says, it's a good thing your wife isn't here to hear you say that. <laughs> so how does she do this? Uh, I think the title I gave uh, to this lecture had something about Protestant comedy, and here's where the Protestant, what I think, I think the Protestant comedy comes in. Uh, the first thing that Portia does is try to persuade Shylock the Jew to be merciful in one of the most beautiful speeches in Shakespeare. I'll read, uh, <coughs> I'll read it for you. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute of awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show like us gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer does teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have thus much spoken to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow this strict court of Venice, must needs give sentence against the merchant there. That doesn't persuade Shylock. Shylock still insists on the letter of the law. So what Portia does is to trap him in the law. Traps the Jew who insists on the letter of the law 
And enforcing the letter of the law is what opens up the possibility and the reality of mercy for Antonio. How does she do that? She makes a couple of suggestions. Uh, do you have a surgeon to stop the bleeding? Shalak says, not in the contract. You have a scale. Yeah, there's a scale here so we can measure out exactly a pound of flesh. And she says, according to the contract, you have every right to take a pound of flesh from this merchant. But, at the last minute, Shalak sharpening his knife, but the contract, the law, gives you no blood. Take the pound of flesh, it's yours. But if you shed even a drop of his blood, then you're going to be guilty of attempted murder against a citizen of Venice, and you will be subject to the law. And suddenly, Shadok is not so interested in what's in the contract anymore. But see, what, what Portia has done is uh, insisted on the very letter of the law, in some ways even more insistently than Shylock himself, and that letter of the law makes him relent. And he, he starts to try to deal, try to make some other kind of uh, uh, settlement. But he's already refused all the settlements that have been offered. And so he loses the case. He's forced to convert to Christianity. Uh, his wealth is handed over to, partly to the state, partly to Antonio. Uh, Antonio gives it on to his, uh, his uh, Shylock's son-in-law, whom Shylock never wanted to have. Lorenzo, um, and, it, and everything ends badly for Shylock. But it's, it's a, a Protestant comedy. It, it feels Protestant to me that it's not by keeping the law that we find redemption. It's not by obedience to the law, but it's also not by canceling the law. Paul says this, it's, uh, do we then nullify the law? Does grace nullify the law? Uh, may it never be. Rather, we establish the law. That's the principle that we have at the end of Merchant of Venice. And the comedy comes out of the, very, the, the enforcement of the very law that would have killed Antonio. Uh, and the, one last comment before I open up for questions. I think the, the, another dimension of this is the fact that we have, we, we've been put into a kind of crucifixion scene. We have a Jewish opponent insisting on uh, the death of a Christian, uh, and by that enforcement of the law in that setting, it's, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of cross that Antonio is ready to bear. But enforcing the law in that setting is the very thing that brings grace. So that's an example of the faith that I talked about earlier. You have this uh, impasse that Venice reaches. It can't deny the contract, it can't enforce the contract, They've, uh, Venice has gotten itself into this tangle that it cannot get itself out of. And only some outside force, some act of grace, can bring the common conclusion that saves Antonio uh, and saves Venice from Shylock's, uh, from Shylock's plot. Thank you.